0: You have to listen to other people to a certain extent, but I think the bottom line is you need to listen to the people that you're actually trying to serve. Mm-hmm. And if you are, if their advice is always, it's, it doesn't work like it should, but it's getting better and I'm happy about it. Then you're on the right track, provided you've done you know there's enough people that it fulfills a desire. But I think a lot of more people have to get into the trenches and talk to those people, and don't worry about someone who looks at their analytics or looks at their marketing or looks at this. If they're constantly working with the person they're trying to create the solution for, and those people are constantly getting more and more impressed and more loyal and this is helped making an impact, then you keep doing it. If people just don't even care, the people that you're trying to help, they don't care, then maybe it's time to mm. say, "What am I doing?" Because I'm trying to help people and they don't care. And I've explained it to them. Yeah. That's a waste of my time. Yeah. But they're like, if you solve this thing, like you've got a customer for life. And you improve on that mission, they're going to be patient with you for helping them. And you, you have a vision and you have a, something behind you. Real People is produced by Square Holes, an agency conducting and publishing customized explorative research on key consumer markets, customers, and population segments. Square Holes also provides associated consulting and support to ignite positive business and social behavior change. Visit SquareHoles.com for more.
1: Radio, hello there. My name is Jason Dunstone, and welcome to Real People, where we interview average and not-so-average people, academics, researchers, and leading thinkers to help us better understand what real people believe and how they behave. Craig Swan joins us today, an award-winning music technology vet and founder of looplabs.com, a free online music-making community with around 1 million users. Craig has been living, playing and building on the internet for 27 years since the web was black and white. Craig is also event director of Southstart, an event in Adelaide, South Australia, November this year. It is a gathering of entrepreneurs, investors and innovators. You can find out more about South Start at southstart.co. Craig recently moved to Adelaide, South Australia, from New York. We find out why and how he's finding the city. We discuss all things startup, community, robots, and more. Let's not waste a moment. On with the show. Hit it.
0: That's what I'm talking about. Wait.
1: Okay, now from the beginning. G'day, Craig. Thank you so much for um, joining us today. I'm going to start right back at the beginning, like we do with all of these interviews. What were you like as a young boy?
0: <laughs> Let's get right into it. Let's get right into it. Uh, it's one of those things I often wonder why it is we lose often our ability to, to recall memories past, you know, maybe age three or four. But as a young child, I was certainly inquisitive. Uh, I was a playful person. I was also a very I was a smaller child for much of my childhood or I guess until probably my late teenagers. Um so that has an impact certainly growing up uh, yeah. where your physical stature in yeah. the pecking order if you will in the, <laughs> in yeah. the playground in the in the schoolyard. Um, always a fun kid but uh, you know I think I often quickly get to the realization the point that you know when I grew up I was at a very fortunate age where computers had just just begun to enter somewhat of the yeah. consumer sphere and so a lot of my mind was really opened up and became super inquisitive by the nature of the fact that we had the capabilities of, of this newfound technology you know connecting people across the planet in, in the early 80s um so i think that shaped a lot of just by nature of when i was born as much of what i was like when i was uh, a young child
1: yeah cool good were you studious or were you did you play with tech when you were younger because we got into
0: it, you know, it was probably eight or nine when we sort of first had access to computers, so it's a, it's a pretty interesting age, developmentally-wise. Um, so that got me certainly curious with regards to that. I think in general, general growing up in Canada, and there's, a, you know, a lot of similarities, I think, as we've spoken to earlier, with regards to sort of the makeup of, of us as a culture and as a people in, in Australia and Canada. So there's just a lot of uh, outdoor activities. I mean, we grew up as much, uh, you know, as I may have been noddling around on a computer at a young age. We were riding bikes and playing in the park and playing war and, and hide-and-seek in and massive parks and uh, just, you know, parents never knew where you were and you're riding bikes, you know, <laughs> forever, getting lost.
1: So when you play messing around, messing around with uh, technology, did you do it with your Is it one of your, the, the bonding things you did with your friends at that age?
0: Um, I, I was one of the first, sort of, to get really into it, so a lot of it wasn't directly with a physical community, but right away, you know, we were running BBSs, so that was the first chance you had to really be connecting and chatting and, and, and communicating with people somewhere else physically. Yeah. And to me, that was just a profound thing to be able to connect to people that yeah. are in another room somewhere else at such a young age when that was sort of at the dawn of that even being a possibility. Yeah. So I think a lot of that, to a certain extent, may have isolated me from some of the physical stuff because I went down that rabbit hole of this is an incredible new technology
1: mm-hmm. And explored that with other people, but to explore so you had that realization, it was new and exciting. Oh, absolutely! At that age,
0: yeah? Oh, absolutely! I mean, you, you could not. It was just just had entered. You yeah. know, not even the zeitgeist. It just entered just consciousness really yeah. at that point. Yeah, and so sort of the late seventies. But um, yeah, I think that's one of those amazing. Uh, things, but like we're talking about, that that sense of isolation, because to explore these new frontiers of this new concept, it requires you to pretty much be isolated, talking to other people, somewhere else isolated, to even test through and run through these things and experience what that experience is like. So um, certainly in two phases of my life, certainly in the the early 80s when I was BBSing and then in the early 90s when the web came back, I certainly found a good year of my life where it it was a dip into that world and it was not much coming up for air because you're just lost in this crazy new frontier, mm. connecting with people on a it's similar It's funny, venture. isn't it? Yeah, yeah.
1: It, it, it? Sort of back in that kind of time, like the idea of being on a BBS, and I think a lot, a lot of our listeners they're a certain age probably wouldn't even know what a BBS is, but I'm assuming as, as a young child uh, doing that as a, in, in your bedroom or wherever, like, and that technology being relatively new was an, an uncertainty from your parents. Is that about... Just just what it is and what you're exploring and 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 what what does it actually mean. And I think
0: it was also coming in at the same time that that media was generally coming in. I mean, that was the dawn of MTV in that generation, so culture had a new face with regards to media. And I think... It was just this really, this, this interesting timing. I think about it a lot in terms of the way that work. I, my Mac background is largely music and technology and, and those early 80s was such a pivotal time and so many first happened with regards to basically the internet was formed, TCP IP became a thing. You've got the advent of MIDI. You've got the CD coming up for the first time. You've got the Commodore 64, the biggest sing- selling computer of all time coming up all in that span of one year. It was like an explosion of all these sort of technologies that were really resonating with me at that young age, falling in love with music, but also this concept of communicating. And I think one of the fascinating things was in Canada, we had the ability to use tape as an analog source to load up uh, data files Mm -hmm. through the computer, which I'm sure you guys probably had somewhere here as well. And we had radio stations where they would do shows where they'd say, all right, everyone, get ready to press record. And they would just Say, okay, go now. You press record, and for 20, 25 minutes, you would just hear the beeps of of digital being broadcast over the radio waves, being recorded onto an audio cassette. You would then stop it. You would go back into your computer and you would type in load, and that magically would load up a game. And it's like as a child, the mystery of these invisible technologies of radio and bits and bytes, like I think it was like that, that invisible
1: nature of this profound technology that was just the most inspiring aspect of it yeah, for, for what me. about the music side so what, what where where did music come in um into your life as a child what, what role did it play and when, when did it start to be introduced at
0: that same time in the early 80s and for me it wasn't really so much the music of the day that sort of classic pop 80s sound it was hearing you know a neighbor play this insane sounds from their backyard and i was just so fascinated wondering what on earth that it was and he said that's Jimi Hendrix, and I'm like, what? What's Jimi Hendrix? And it turned out I was listening to the Star Spangled Banner, yeah, yeah. and he told me that was a guitar that was making that that those insane sounds. Yeah, yeah. And I just instantly fell in love with the idea that again, this other invisible force, uh, which was the sound coming over, you know, the hedges from the yards, could influence me to then want to play the guitar and pick that up. And that's where I found my
1: journey, kind of interweaving between music and technology at that mm-hmm. point. How old were you when that music, that sort of Jimi Hendrix moment?
0: I mean I would say about twelve, eleven, twelve. Yeah, it's yeah. It's interesting. Just, it? just before, yeah, that just that whole yeah era. It was um fascinating. Especially in parallel with what was going on in the eighties. You got your Cindy Laupers and your <laughs> yeah, Lewis and, it's and, interesting. and your men at work, which yeah, <laughs> smashed right. out for us over there.
1: It's interesting um, how much music is introduced to us by hearing it somewhere from somebody else. I remember going camping while well, i you ought have been with some mates. So they've, they've obviously introduced music before this, I think, but finding violent themes going, what the hell is that? Yeah. <laughs> and you go, that's amazing. And it just sort of sparks that emotion inside you that you, you can't let go. So so when you con- you take the bridge from you as a um, know, 10, 12 into your teenage years, when did that, it sounded like the technology and the music was colliding already at that age. So, When did it sort of start evolving into making that into your profession, I guess?
0: Yeah, I mean, for me, I actually felt out of love with it. You know, maybe within five years later, I, I was a Commodore guy. I, I loved that early days of, of the computer, and the, when the PC sort of came in, I was just not a part of that wave, and I just, I just it lost its charm for me until it was the early '90s again, and I was at university, and that's where we were exposed to the web. The web would come out, and here I saw like the next uh, evolution of this this first wave of. Uh, communicating that I'd seen come live, and I got the bug again. Mm-hmm. And that's where I was really starting to think about the magic possibilities. And of course, like before, the combination of music, as someone that was an avid uh, Grateful Dead enthusiast and catching a lot of shows where you have as, as much as 100,000 people in, in trance in this sort of uh, experience where music sort of intertwines everyone, I started thinking about the power of music and the effect it would have in that physical way mm-hmm. combined with this newfangled web that was coming out and what mm-hmm. that might mean. And that sort of set me on a new path where I wanted now to
1: pursue uh, a lot of ways that that could become a reality. Which so sort of, you said you are following the Grateful Dead or? Yeah. So around Yeah, I mean, concerts, you know, so when it would
0: come through the Northeast, you'd, you'd catch as many shows as you could while yeah. they were in your area, dipping yeah. down from from Canada into the Northeast. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you maybe catch four or five shows in a, in a sprint at once, but. Um, but just even that experience of, of how much there was a community around something, which is what the internet
1: is. The so you exploding. see that community, so that oh, yeah. physical oh. community in go. Yeah.
0: and that's one of the things that I'm just so – I feel so fortunate to have dipped my toe into that world to experience what that's like because there's not a lot of that now. You have these big festivals and these things that are not the same experience as what I was used to. It was all about one band bringing that party together, not – you need 50 acts, and it's you know basically what you wear, and you take pictures of it, and mm. it's a different experience than certainly what. what, what so, what was the community
1: been. like in that? the the, the physical family,
0: family, very uh, supportive, um, collaborative in nature. People were trying to help everyone follow to the next place, and if it meant they had to help them sell more things in the parking lot and, and cook some food or do, they would Is help that right? do that. Okay. Well, oh yeah, yeah. people yeah. were making food and 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 selling it in the parking lots, and there was a culture, and there was an economy built around it. There was clothes, all, all parts of uh, arts and crafts. I mean, not everyone was falling. them. People would dip in from that city and there'd be, you know, T-shirts and, and stuff that people sell. But it was a loving community that was just built around uh, a sense of community and, and self-love, which was just a beautiful thing. And I think yeah. that's what a lot of the early Internet pioneers had sort of coming from. And that was really more from the earlier, you know, 60s and sort of that uh, revolution is where you saw a lot of people that were leading technology around that time in the first uh, wave of the web.
1: Yeah. So when you started bringing technology into your thinking around music, what, when did that, how did that sort of transpire? What, what happened?
0: Well, you know, it was something I wanted to pursue as soon as I sort of realized in the early 90s, but it just wasn't, wasn't possible, wasn't accessible, the tools weren't there yet. So I was basically on a pursuit to do that, which led me to, wasn't until about 2000 where I was actually able to use ubiquitous tools on a platform with the web to be able to create a browser-based experience where people could create music. So that was, you know, 10 years later almost, from when I sort of started thinking of the idea to make a reality. And so was, what was that idea
1: at the start? What was that sort of the seed of the idea that you were... Uh,
0: democratizing the ability... To, for me, it wasn't just the the social music thing. It was really the profound after-experience of hundreds of people in a parking lot, uh, in a rhythm jam, just making noises with their, their throats, their bodies, their hands, their feet, yeah. and, and drums, and connecting on that way. Like, there's a very profound experience when you connect with people through music. I mean, I've been in yeah, bands a yeah. lot, and there's... People will test to those environments being very profound in terms of the way you can connect with other humans. And so for me, it was how can we embrace this technology to tap into that ability to connect as humans? Because that's the most yeah. real thing of anything. And I feel even more passionate about it now because as we see the last 10 years, what social media has done and the way that I think we see a lot of displacement between young people and the addictions that people are starting to have, there's a real loss of connection in the physical world. Mm. And I'm really passionate about how that can be tapped into. And I feel like music is still one of those things, even when it's remote, which can tap on such a primal thing that yeah. can unite us as people that has some kind of value or meaning yeah. to it.
1: So even when there's, sort of, there's that connection with music and sharing and building music like virtually, sort of online, you still sense that there's that sense of community and belongingness and connection.
0: I think any time yeah. that there's a, a sense of collaboration, I mean, there's a lot of people that... Uh, the internet's allowed us to find these little pockets of, of people with similar interests that we might have never found, because where would you find these obscure groups, you know, 30 years ago? Now you can find them. A lot of them have to be remote, but it's the ability to share in these stories with other people that have a similar feeling is where a lot of the power is. Music just happens to be a very visceral form of that. But I think generally people just automatically resonate and are attracted to the ability to have like-minded people listen to them, have feedback,
1: connect, really. Yeah. So, can you tell me a bit more about your sort of your, your platform and and how it's evolved over the years? And
0: absolutely. And so, so it was really much, nothing more than an experiment to make it happen back in the early two thousands. But being the first of its kind, it, it sort of found itself a, a lot of success and sort of got to the attention of a much wider audience, especially when it was sort of demoed when Safari launches a browser by Steve Jobs. So, it's one of those crazy things where they never tell you. By the way, Steve's going to throw up some of your technology, um, but watching that happen that day sort of changed my life because it made people aware that he kind of made this similar idea of democratizing music and what he was trying to do with making things accessible. He made this concept much more obtainable in people's eyes. So a lot of people wanted to create interesting music applications and find ways to connect people with music. So I found myself creating a lot of interesting applications whether it was integrating with uh, video games or doing uh, video campaigns and finding interesting ways for people to connect uh, through music. Um, Ironically, that sort of journey, which lasted almost ten years, was put to an end because it was based on a technology which, it was, it wasn't an open technology. It was mm, based mm. on a technico- technology called Flash, which for most people is probably that annoying thing that <laughs> kept yeah. prompting them to reinstall install the plugin. Um, but that's also a good lesson learned when you sort of do base, you know, a, a technology or a product on a certain stack of technology. To certain times, you can be limited. I mean, yeah. you saw an entire industry and sort of fall to its knees simply because one provider didn't, you know, sort of adopt that sort of platform as a as a creative outlet.
1: Yeah. So, so when this, I'm interesting when when Steve Jobs sort of pres, so it was a video of like obviously Steve doing one of his. his uh, introductions to the new tech and the new wave and talked about music and being more open and used your platform as an example of how that could be done. Is that <laughs> Yeah, Sarah? I mean,
0: a little bit more in the context of, you know, trying to showcase his new browser and the capabilities it yeah. had to be able to bring new experiences yeah. of what the internet offered. He pointed to music, which is something he had a passion for, and I guess the ability to, to be able to create music through yeah. the web and, and, and showcasing that through what he was democratizing with a browser that was going to be more accessible would be a, yeah. a good show for him, yeah.
1: Yeah. So that started driving interest to your platform more for people to, I, know, I mean, I awareness. and, I mean, and yeah, otherwise. I mean, I think
0: you you realize that this is, something, and it is a very engaging thing. I mean, through its lifetime, you know, we've seen people between 20 and 30 minutes of engagement time per visit yeah. uh, actively creating music. So it really taps into both sides of your brain. It's yeah. a compelling experience. So I think a lot of people saw the value in it as a medium to engage with customers with regards to marketing campaigns because yeah. music is always powerful. The thing that I did notice, which was very frustrating, was that uh, people didn't really have the foresight to think, well, why don't we keep running this campaign for, for years and years and build into yeah. a real huge sort of media thing? And instead, you know, the next quarter would roll around and they would pull it offline. And that was always very frustrating because we would see millions of people engage in this new opportunity to create music. Uh, and instead of moving and growing with that, they kind of just cut and displaced all those people from that engagement with the brand. Yeah. And I always didn't really understand that. And it frustrated me because, you know, I see people engage with it and you want to see it continue to grow and it yep. would just get grow to millions and then taken down. You do yep. another one and grow to millions of people using them, and be taken down. So it was, uh, that was a frustrating part despite the lucrative nature of you yeah. know, the license the technology.
1: So what sort of brands were, were, um, were partnering with you, even if they were short terms?
0: Yeah. I mean, you, you know, Bacardi and Heineken and yeah. Sony and Coca-Cola's and, uh, you know, car brands, Volvo. And I'm just thinking through was a lot of automotive companies, initially enough a lot of uh, consumer brands.
1: So you had a you had a community and you had an audience that they're gone well we want to get in front of that audience we we well,
0: well this is before there I mean there was an audience because it was growing but all these things were siloed experiences that were sort of held on their own sort of vanity vanity domain. So uh, you never had ownership over that. I think that was the frustrating part because I would even notice certain users and certain people that would be jumping from the Bacardi experience to then the Heineken one that would be a few months later because the other one had t- gone offline, they had found this new one, and then they would go to that to make music. Yeah. And I found that frustrating. So were these
1: brands using the platform to help them to create music to – to have an engagement activity, is that Yeah, is that I mean, I think
0: largely it was a way for them to. I mean, music is 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 pretty much the number one activity. Pretty much now, it's much more of a background experience, but yeah. still, it, it's it's a dominant behind messaging. They say that music is the number two activity used on mobile. Yeah. Yet, it represents you know a tiny per, per, percentage of the total money invested in any kind yeah. of uh, application uh, ecosystem.
1: But, but just I guess sort of the, the the brands that were were using the platform were almost using it as a way of engaging with the audience For sure. as part and, of their marketing but strategy. But it, it was also
0: growing through that whole Web 2.0 thing, so the whole user-generated movement was happening around the same time. So the idea that you could create an online thing where someone could score the soundtrack to a commercial for Sprite that would then air on, on television, yeah. that whole thing was just a compelling promise that you could take something online and convert it all the way to someone watching that ad that was created online on television. So yeah. I think it was people wanting to flex creativity through the new medium and the new ways you could do things. Yeah. Um, sometimes it was more a matter of straight engagement. Yeah. Um, it depended on each yeah. sort of activation was unique usually in some, some way. Yeah.
1: Do you think, it? mean, you mentioned the frustration of not being able to have the brands make that kind of commitment. Do you think it was just, I guess often you see brands and marketers They, they move on to the next thing and then the next thing and it's sort of hard for them to be, (laughs) to lock in and make a commitment. Do you think that was it or do you, where where do you, yeah, totally. Where do you think that? Yeah,
0: I, I, I think that, I mean, I think that's 100% of it. You have to think ahead and because you have to plan quarters or sometimes years in advance. You never know how successful one campaign can be, so you can't say you're just going to put all in for 18 months on a campaign. Mm. So I understand the nature of it having to be cyclical to a certain extent. It's where when you start seeing the actual, you know, the data come in you see this is actually working. That to me is interesting where people don't decide to double down on that and figure out how to turn it into a a longer, more engaged activation. But um, there's a lot of bureaucracy in corporate world as much as there is. is anywhere else.
1: And you must sort of find, I guess there's a benefit. You, said, you mentioned about it, that it was nice having the money coming in, but do you find that when you have those corporate brands involved, you start to get steered in a direction that maybe doesn't completely fit with where your head's at? Or uh, I, necessarily. Think, I think
0: most times most of them never have the creative brief enough that would be they'd be looking for that guidance or they would basically give me that. And it would be very hard to give someone the exact same thing. It would always be a matter of having to then put on your creative hat and say, well, how can we spin this around? So we would do interesting things where, all right, so we'll go in there and we'll sample every single sound that your car makes. And then we'll go and make a bunch of music based on the sounds of the car. And then people can make music based on that. So it might be trying to figure out how you take the same engine to apply to different creative uh, campaigns or or constructs around that.
1: So what what what's your focus now? What what are you working? What, you're in Adelaide, South Australia now. But yeah. what, what's your focus from a? Are you working still connecting quite quite a bit globally, or is it more locally? Yeah, or?
0: Well, yeah. I think I think partly just by nature of the fact that you know, ever since I was like as a young child, sort of connecting with people remotely, I, that's just been the nature of my network and my friends, my associates, whatever. My my groups of people are all over the planet. So. Uh, where I am doesn't really matter to me as much as it might to other people. Yeah, it's more about the the family and people that are close to you, certainly. Um, so certainly as as I continue to build out and think about new ways that people can interact and, and work with with music. Since I've been here, I've been super, uh, just engaged and interested with the entire community here. That's it's kind of uh, somewhat nascent, but like so passionate. There's just so many amazing people looking to turn this sort of. Uh, Small business thinking into startup thinking. And that journey is an exciting one. And I think just with me being able to spend even just the last 10 years in in, in New York and being sort of in the middle of such a high density uh, situation where people are working through those things, uh, I think there's an opportunity to really uh, help sort of move this thing along and give it a sense of uh, um, what's the word I'm looking for?
1: Momentum and
0: the momentum's there. You know, it, it's synergy. Listen, if anyone were try to say exactly what is or isn't happening, is it really difficult to do. I just know that there's just a lot of amazing people with amazing ideas, amazing passion, amazing talent, and I think if we can create together bigger platforms to let the rest of the world and people see the amazing people that are doing amazing things, success will come here. Yeah, I think it's just a matter of partly that sort of Australian tall poppy mindset, perhaps where. Some of the amazing things that, that that come out of this area or in the country in general don't get quite the recognition simply because people aren't making it aware to people as much. Yeah. So I think any way that I can help, you know, beat the chest of the amazing people here and, and let people see that that'd be amazing because I've just <laughs> I'm gobsmacked at all the amazing developments that I see. Yeah. Uh, it's a it's a really interesting town full of really rich ideas and, and deep technology.
1: Yeah. So you've dealt with the New York startup community and obviously uh, Adelaide and South Australia. And uh, have you dealt with other startup communities around the world?
0: Yeah. So I, you know, I think the, the first opportunity really steeped deep would have been in Toronto. And that was really before we're talking like, you know, the late nineties now. So it's really before kind of the idea of startups were now back then it was the web was forming. So it was a lot of small groups of people that were banding together. They were creating Digital products, creating digital agencies, that were creating experiences. So it was like a different type of startup culture. So certainly being very active and growing through Toronto, one of the uh, the larger uh, user groups through Macromedia with a, a bunch of community folks. We uh, built Canada's largest design technology conference out of that group. So we saw this ability to sort of foster that and to catalyze that and grow into something. Which even that, you know, uh, they've taken that event now, you know, overseas, and it's been an amazing yeah. sort of thing. Of of growth. So to me it's just been always interesting connecting people, whether it's online virtually through communities, whether it's it's through community physically. I think that's the magic is when you can take as much of that uh sort of human brilliance of, of human energy and connect that and cross pollinate that. That's when things are amazing, which is why a place like New York and it's the density, right? I mean something that's lacking here a little bit is that density where you have those creative, you know, collisions that can happen more frequently. Mm.
1: So it's it's that so it's, it's those people working together and that collaboration really is that right that that makes a good startup community that having enough enough people there with like minds to come together
0: yeah that, i think i think but it's compounded by that that density formula yeah. right so the the physical, like the vicinity actually matters, I think, when it comes yeah. to these things, because if you're sharing the same uh, bar after work or the same coffee shop in the morning with somebody else that's doing similar things in the same region, you're likely to eventually have conversations that will grow around that. If you're in an isolated area, because I mean, there's a lot of co-working spaces, a lot of people doing similar things in different places, which is great that there's a lot of activity, but then there's less opportunity for that to happen. So... I know there's a lot of talk about creating bigger hubs, and different cities have these huge precincts. And I think there's something to be said for that. I think whatever you can do to facilitate as many people, you know, coming mm-hmm. together and crossing through each other's days, the more interesting uh, things will happen, and much faster.
1: Yeah, just that uh, that, that almost that cross pollination of bumping into each other and and to be able to discuss what are you up to. This, so is is that right? Just those yeah, continuous I mean, discussions without any real structure to it, but it just from from that create seeds and potentially I, opportunities I think, come from it. And
0: I think it becomes more a natural way of, of doing things where it's just, you just, that's just what you do. You just connect people and there's never a thought about what's in it for you. And there's still different ecosystems and in, and in, in different cities in the world where there's a very strong mentality where it's like, you know, watch your back and, you know, look up yourself and I'll hook you up if I get something out of it. And those are just very destructive things. And they happen in certain industries, uh, maybe more than certain locations. But I think uh, when you're in a high-density location, you have the opportunity to hear some news from someone in the morning and, and by the afternoon pass on that to someone else that can actually utilize that and that become a new partnership or like, oh, we need to connect. And then connecting that, like you get a lot of those things happening regularly. And I think that really accelerates yeah. the way that the uh, people uh, sort of can riff off each other.
1: Yeah. Okay. And the virtual connection versus the physical connection of having it. So you're in. I'm assuming you're saying in in an area where you can actually be in a, a room together, or in a yeah, in, in an office together, or just bumping into each other is often more conducive necessarily than just crossing a, crossing paths yes. via Twitter. Is, yes. that, is that right? So. Why, why, do you, why do you think that's the case? Because right.
0: I think I think the human interactions are becoming more and more valuable. Yeah. And I think if you use that to your advantage by facilitating those connections, people walk away with, well, that's just what was the greatest thing about it. If you can bring together the right people into an empty room, they'll be just happy because you facilitated the right people being in the right room and and they'll just work it out amongst themselves. I think you don't have to always direct people. You just have to try to do everything you can to make sure that the right people have an opportunity to bump into the other right people, and they will. I yep. believe that it's to a certain level the universe will conspire to, to do that if you go halfway there and make yourself available. Yeah, okay.
1: Because that, 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 I guess it's, it's a question sometimes for different points in their career of what's the point of networking, and the point of networking exactly what you're saying. It's actually been able to just have those – Almost as informal discussions with like-minded individuals or, or to even to find like-minded individuals that might actually help you to get to that next point to, to get your business off and going or fill a gap in your idea. Is that, is that fair?
0: I think so. I think, I think, I think if the more that people look at networks as not how that network will benefit them, but how they're constantly looking for ways to help connect to people in that network. Yeah, I think that's an important distinction of what I think true networking is. I mean, there's a lot of people that collect a lot of cards and do a lot of stuff and shake a lot of hands, and that to me is not the same as doing that whole thing with the intent of always trying to figure out at the end of the night how can I connect two people because I know they're looking for a creative person here. This person is looking for this person. Well, I just will almost ask people for the person the other person is looking for as I go through the night because I'm almost you know able to do that as an interesting point, but also connect people. So I think I think that's an important part as much as looking at it from how do I network for my own benefits business wise or personally. Yeah, okay.
1: Cuz be, before we got the interview started um in today in the in the local press uh it was an announcement that South was was, was coming up, uh, which is great, which you're involved in, mm-hmm. uh, and you're we, we talking about the the networking as part of that or bringing people together. Can you maybe give us a bit of an idea of a bit more of an idea about St- South Start for those who are local or even across Australia? They could they could come across, yeah. Um, and what what it is, and then I guess the networking part of that as well.
0: So I mean, South Start is really uh, a gathering of, of of like minds to sort of collect around curious uh, ideas, disruptive technologies. But really be that place where whether you're um, startup curious, if you will, you're a current founder, you're a business leader, you're someone interested in these emerging technologies, you're, you're deep into research and developing these things, I think the more that we have uh, avenues like this to try to bring interesting ideas with interesting people and have them discuss that, uh, you're going to get a lot of interesting things happening. So that acceleration aspect that we're talking about. So with a focus on a lot of the amazing technology that are coming out of here, the frontier things that are leading the way, you're going obviously going to have a lot of space, a lot of uh, uh, IoT, a lot of big data stuff. Obviously, artificial intelligence, machine learning are sort of embedded more and more in everything. And I think as we look at the way that some of these technologies are going to converge and the way that that blockchain might play a role in out of this or the way that it won't. There's a lot of people that have very mixed views. But I think having those sort of counterpoints and discussions around what future mobility is, what is new space, how do we create new ways of creating sustainability through big data and space architecture. And these are really interesting ideas, and people are kind of going through that. And I think by exposing an environment for several days where there's a lot of opportunities to learn, a lot of opportunities to connect and to network, and to facilitate those kind of connections, which is a big part of, of an event like this, uh, that's where the real value is. I mean, it's, again, as it's people need to learn how to take value out of things for themselves. It's not one of those things where I can read a book about uh, you know, doing push-ups and that's the same as doing them. It's, it's a matter of having to get out there and do that. So we want to just try, try to get that right environment where people can really connect and really activate and, and meet new people and create new ideas and new businesses and, and just be stimulated. I think yeah. that's the the core gist of what Star is
1: really aiming to do. Okay. So, and so for people who go to events like Southstar, it's been really clear about why you're going and what you're looking to get out of that. Is, it, is that right? Sort of has been knowing... Where your head is and what almost what success out of the event actually means. Is it about collaborating? Is it meeting like minds? Is it, I, is it I, learning something new? Is it? I think everyone's going to
0: have, they're going to be a unique place along that journey. And I think by having a lot of distinctive voices that have come from a whole bunch of different scenarios, whether it's a new path that they're taking, whether they've gone abroad and come back and have amazing stories to tell about the opportunities that are here, I think all these vantage points will apply to different people on different levels. Mm. And I think what we're aiming to do is to create as much inspiration across some of these themes that are sort of very uh, ripe and maturing here in the state to the attention, not just to people here that are locally activated in the community, but for people interstate and beyond who are coming here and really letting them have a real good taste of what it's like to be uh, building a business in South Australia, what it's like to be playing with these types of technologies and, and sort of put a little look behind the curtain of some of the stuff that's going on that people aren't aware of and, and be proud of it and start some new relationships and new conversations out of that.
1: Yeah, it's great. Uh, what, are, what are a few businesses or who are a few businesses in South Australia that are doing pretty clever things that you've seen in your last few months or so it's like where does everyone start
0: (laughs) yeah I mean everyone's coming at it from so many different angles and I think um, rather than even thinking about specific companies and there's a few that, that obviously come to mind is is more and more I see that as more events happen where these different people in different companies are starting to communicate and hang out together you're starting to see how it's shaping both of the way that they're developing. And I think that's one of the most amazing things is to me that sort of, that sort of peer support that you're seeing through these companies. Um, but again, I mean, more and more as I go on the rabbit hole of exploring all the wonderful things that fall under the umbrella of space 2.0 or new space. To me, I'm just really, really fascinated because there's a whole subset of technologies that are going on beyond what people think of as space. I mean, even uh, a lot of people will sort of assume just based on the, the press that you'll see via Fleet or Miriota that these are space companies. And they're not really space companies at all. They're relying on something that floats in space, mm-hmm. but really it's a platform and it's, it's a, a way of communicating devices and, and, and creating new sort of ways of creating data sets out of that. And to me, that's amazingly interesting. Uh, so. I can't even answer whether there's a couple. It's just yeah. every day I'm meeting new ones. They're, they're all hiding under rocks. And I guess a lot of what I've been doing for the last few months is just poking my head around as many places I can, and having probably way too many coffees, meeting people to sort of mm-hmm. sort of find the people that are just just doing the work, right? They, they don't have time to go out and, and go to where you might want to see them because mm-hmm. they're out in the lab. They're doing stuff. So it's been more just trying to find and have these interesting conversations. So. A lot of it has been sort of digging up some of these things and, and trying to make sure that they're active in an event like this. So yeah. making sure
1: they're actually coming to those events. That they're so busy, they're overwhelmed. Yeah, um, but but making sure they can see the value and yeah. actually going. And, and for it, some
0: yeah. of these people, and actually sharing some of the stuff that they're doing. I mean, yeah. some of these. I mean, I had an interesting, amazing conversation the other day, you know, around CRISPR and just just. The way that some of these technologies are developing and, and the impact it's going to have in the future is just super interesting. And I think there's a, with an audience like this, people deserve to get a real taste of what sort of the future is looking like. Yeah. Uh, and see if we can't put more of these ideas in the hands of people that are working on something similar. Yeah.
1: So you talked about aerospace, artificial intelligence. What are some of the areas? If you can't come it down to, well, you mentioned a couple of businesses in your, 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 your conversation before, but. What are other some of the, some of the other sectors that you you see as kind of like doing exciting things?
0: Well, obviously, I mean, mobility. I mean, yeah. especially yeah. in a place like this, you've got sort of one of the unique spots in the entire world that's sort of ripe for for testing out these technologies, not from just a legislative point of view hmm. or advanced manufacturing point of view, but even the fact of <laughs> with the aged population and the way that the the city itself has been formed, there's so many things that lend to it that I think there's tremendous opportunities. So to be able to highlight some of the things that are happening here, the things that are piloting here, to bring in some external voices to talk about what that future is. I think that's super exciting. And and already, you know, we're well beyond thinking about the autonomous vehicles are going to be driving around stuff. We're already talking about what's going to fly us around. Mm -hmm. You know, it's so amazing to think that we don't even have that first future here yet, and people are already, you know uh enamored in thinking about this this whole idea of, well, why don't we just fly with these things? Yeah, yeah. And so you see some of these great uh, prototypes and things that are actually in production. So I think that conversation is an important one, which uh, plays to a lot of deeper technology, because now you're talking about there's a whole legal, moral ethics part of this discussion, which I think is an interesting one. You've got the, the whole aspect of the technologies involved from computer vision, machine learning, perspective, you have advanced, I mean, mean, there's all these different components, but they all play very much to the strengths here. So I think it's going to be interesting to have that conversation deepened with regards to having different people from those perspectives, Mm -hmm. having a conversation, as well as inviting a few outside voices to be able to have that conversation and maybe help dictate and, and fire up the young people that are thinking, I want to get involved in this. Because more and more, playing video games is getting closer to developing product. Yeah, okay. And and even that's an interesting concept that, that some sort of founders that we're talking to are exploring with regards to the way they're building culture in their company. So there's just so many interesting stories that I think are relevant for people that are just sort of on this sort of frontier playing with these technologies that it's hard to say whether there's any one thing anyone would get versus uh, a lot of inspiration, a lot of new friends, a lot of new connections, and just a lot... Uh, of opportunity yeah
1: and you're bringing over some speakers from overseas or interstate mm-hmm. yeah
0: so there's going to be a collection of you know everything from adelaide australia and abroad so uh constantly you know uh, having conversations and working through calendars but uh you know happy to announce people like lewis horn from from unity in sweden and what he's doing with you know uh, electric vehicles is, is just super amazing and <laughs> pretty sexy those vehicles what he's they're creating um looking at uh, integrating with with companies like uh, Rocket Lab. I mean, you got people that are in the same sort of space mm-hmm. race. I mean, they're in, in New Zealand, and we're really trying to do as much as we can to activate even that, that Christchurch community because, you know, at Sister Cities, there's not a lot of that collaboration that we talked about earlier, and I feel there's a lot of similarities between what they're doing there in an ecosystem, in the city, in innovation, and even just in the the... the the landscape and the geography as they are here. They're running through a lot of the same challenges, a lot of the same interesting opportunities. And I think there's a lot of learnings. I mean, both places have space agencies and there's a, you know, a big space mm-hmm. sort of race going on in that area, but there's a lot of learnings that can be, uh, sort of passed on. I think the more that we can make those collaborations happen just in that field alone can help accelerate, uh, how both sides can co-develop technologies and new ways to, to leverage, you know, space opportunities.
1: Yeah, yeah, I can't hear. It, it, it's an interesting, Australia, one of the uniqueness of, of Australia is uh, 22 million or so people and um, vast lands in South Australia where oh, the, the land size is about 153% the size of France, but about 3% of the population and, and most of that population is in a very small area as in Adelaide, which makes us really kind of geographically isolated. But Australia is very much like that. There are lots of country towns and and, and some of them are struggling, the, 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 the farming is, is is doing okay in some regions but other others not can you create a global unicorn or large business from anywhere in the world
0: yes yeah hundred yeah. percent and in in one of the best examples of that is is right in the backyard here you look at what uh, Toby and Caleb done with Sweat. Yeah. I mean, this company is on track. I don't know how many months it'll be, but is that'll be most likely the first one. Yeah. Uh, and it's it's largely something that's 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 spoken about much, which is something that really blows me away because I was aware of them when I was in New York, and to to even talk to people here that aren't overly aware that the number one fitness basically app in the world is, is yeah, being yeah, run yeah. out of Isn't here is super interesting to me. So yes, you can do it, and yeah. I think uh, not every piece of technology lends itself to that. When you have a a real defense-oriented sort of academic research approach to things, a lot of that's requiring a lot of deeper technology, which is not just going to flip into market and you're going to go viral and yeah. and, and sell a lot of handbags or some kind of product. Um, but I still think that the opportunities as we see those things grow and, and mature into some of these platforms that are being created with IoT and what the kind of uh, cross-communications between vehicles and smart cities that... When you start thinking of the city as a canvas or really as an API, and people start looking at how they can build technologies and solutions for an entire culture and society based on a smart city, that's the way where I think we have a real opportunity to leapfrog a lot of people because of the infrastructure here. I mean, with the infrastructure to connect a city like this, uh, it's prime to be able to do that, but only if people sort of say, say it as like <laughs> we have a unique opportunity to yep. like basically have a canvas of a city no one else really has. This like let's really go like into this and double down. Then we could be shaping the way that the rest of humanity lives. Like that's an opportunity that I don't hear talked about enough because the opportunity is there if enough people can catalyze those different touch points to focus on solutions that would drive that sort of solution yeah, as okay. a platform.
1: So those are populations outside of the, the the big capital cities like Melbourne, Sydney, Paris, New York, if they're going to be a small they, they need that the government and commercial side investing in the infrastructure like the, like the in Adelaide we've got the ten gig city broadband and the smart city. So they so a country town, a smaller even smaller than Adelaide, could produce that, but they need that investment in that local infrastructure and that that focus to be smart. Is that
0: well? I, I don't know whether it's, it's a necess- necessary truth, but the fact that it's here right now, if it's not leveraged and built upon and, yeah. and done it, then it would be a com- complete waste. Yeah. But the fact that that money and, and time and energy has been put into somewhat future-proofing the ability to create some of these solutions is fantastic, but only in so much as at the next level of people actually doing the software and the experience layer and all those things on top of the the hardware infrastructure, if that's not there, then you're going to fall apart. And I don't know if there's a lot of that thinking here, to be honest. I mean, this is a very engineering sort of back end town, if you will. There's not as many creative front end people here as compared to, you know, some of the cities we've discussed. Mm. So that may be a challenge of either attracting those or starting to nurture people that think about things or those soft skills in a Mm. sort of Mm -hmm. technology stack.
1: So is it, like obviously having that sort of those those hubs of the having populations all thinking about ideas and having those startup communities, is that about kind of obviously mean, nurturing those those entrepreneurs to come through and create create the next uh, the next um kind of growth business? Uh, so I guess that that's sort of that is it about having that or is it will an will an entrepreneur find? Find an idea and make it happen. I guess it's sort of going to do we need like having those communities together? To to ha- or, or could you be in Swanhill or, or, or Berry and, and be a really smart entrepreneur? Well, you
0: can. I mean, if you think about it, I mean, technically, at some point, you know, when, when they started building Sweat, it was kind of like they were in a place that yeah. wasn't doing anything like that and they did it. So certainly it's possible. I think what's important for the next couple of years is that. There's a real mental health aspect that goes into running a business. Mm -hmm. And there's some people here that have certainly gone through it, obviously. But as more and more people are sort of being brought up to be entrepreneurs and wanting to put it in school systems, which is fantastic, there's also something that has to be figured out with regards to what that means to sort of follow your vision to the point that people want to leave your life if you continue to do that. So I think that's one of the things about that uniting aspect, which is really important, which is that sense that there's like a a peer group to go through this. Because also a lot of the learning that goes into building a company or a startup like this is just in time, right? You're not going to get it in week seven of an accelerator program. You can't wait for it. You need to go and bend elbows and have a pint with someone and say, I'm in this hiring dilemma. What? How'd you get around Mm -hmm. this? Or I'm trying to figure out how to, to grow at this level. I can't hit my berm with this. I mean, whatever yeah. it is that you're dealing with and have people that have gone through that because I think that's when you have a real uh, accelerated sense of growth when you have a community that can support itself on that level because enough people mm. have gone through it that uh, you can find them and they're accessible and yeah. they'll sh- op- be open to share about yeah. it. So that's an even smaller subset of people that might be eligible. Yeah, that's
1: right. So, I don't know, even know in our journey where there's, there's certainly points when you're thinking, oh, God, <laughs> you, you hear about all the sort of the the um, the positive aspects of running a business but when you kind of get, when push comes to shove and you've got those not so positive aspects, all you need to do is, all, all you want to do is have a beer with somebody really and just yeah. be able to chat that through and, and that's really what, what comes with having a, a start-up community really, yep. isn't it? Having people you can talk to and bounce ideas off and yep. and, and grow together. Uh where do, where do you think those ideas, uh, big ideas, you talked about Toby before and sweat, mm-hmm. where, where do you think those ideas come from? Someone who just does actually go, there must be a lot of, well, everybody comes up with an idea of that they could, uh, they would think might revolutionise the world, but very, very few people actually do it. What, what, what do you think the differentiator for people who actually do Push forward and make it happen.
0: I think it's people that know how to tap into the the, the community aspect, tap into a community of people or a tribe, if you will, that resonate with what it is that you're doing. I mean, they saw that someone was, people were resonating with what they were doing. They turned that into a business and rallied people that were on a similar mission and wanted to mm-hmm. accomplish the same things. And so that becomes a whole different thing. Uh, and I think more and more, a lot of people, even from conversation I've had here, sort of mentoring with companies that, Sometimes I think a not a lot of thought has gone into who are you marketing to? Mm-hmm. Who is the person? And even sometimes people will think, well, it's going to be this company, but haven't thought, but it's this person in this role ultimately that's going to have to be aware of it and sell it internally. And they go, that's right. Well, who's that person? Ah, that's who I'm selling to. Yeah, and I okay. think that sort of whole approach of figuring what do I actually have to do and how do I get it to market is something that's, that's largely missing, which is why I like to see much more pollination of the sort of the MBA level type stuff, because I see some of this engineering stuff that doesn't have that other view that says, you know, that sort of jobs Wozniak, like someone else that goes, Duh, like, do it like this. Oh, really? And I think the more that we can create those opportunities and mm. you, you see some fun stuff start happening.
1: Yeah. It's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because like, like we obviously see different ideas coming through, and we do we do some work in the, the startup entrepreneurial sort of system. Um, and I don't think I'd ever really say necessarily that someone's idea is not a good one because they might have a genius idea and I can't can't see it. But I do find obviously what we do is we, we do market testing, and we look at product market fit and the best path to market, and do a lot of research. And I do find often there's a there's the, that idea from a tech technical side or technology side but they're missing the customer or the consumer or is there is there actually a, a demand for this market or or they'll have a they might have a great idea but they'll target a very small geographic area so well you're not going to get enough revenue to be able to make a sustainable yeah. business well, so think- what do you see when that's that 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 maybe that great idea or those great technical skills but they're missing the customer the consumer or and that could be b2b or it could be um, b2c what, what do you see
0: well, I think, I think you're right. First off, in that sometimes you see people that are looking for that problem for the solution they have, right? And that comes out of a lot of people that are academic and through mm-hmm. research and discovery. I think that's an important thing that either a community can help, help you through that. But at that point, you need to figure out, I can't do this on my own. I mean, mm-hmm. I also meet a lot of people that are completely afraid of, of divvying up a part of this idea to someone else that can actually help them sell it. And I think that still boggles my mind because if you're unable to be able to sell your own vision because you don't have the ability to mm-hmm. be socially adept at doing that uh, in a situation or have the marketing prowess to be able to communicate it, whatever it is, then you need to have that on your team for sure. And ideally you'd want a founder that can, that has a similar vision that you can go to market with, I think. Um, that's, that's an integral thing. And I think a big part of what I, I've also identified is that there's a little bit of a lack of a storytelling aspect, like, what is a narrative in, in what you're trying to sell no matter what it is, whether it's your business or even other things that I've sort of seen here. there's just a, just goes to market and there's no real story behind a lot of things, which I think lacks that ability to resonate with a human being. The, that human thing, I think, is, is ultimately the connection you have to have to, uh, to sell anything. right? Mm.
1: So that lack of story of why does this product exist, is that right?
0: As much as wh- why does it matter that yeah. it exists? I mean, yeah. why it exists because I thought it was great and they built it. Why do I care about that? Well, because it's beneficial for your back. Well, why should I care about that? Well, because if you're a person with a bad back that's hurt at three-footy or whatever, you may want to have... You start getting why, 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 you get to the point of who you're talking to and then you mm-hmm. know how to reframe it, but a lot of people don't go through that. And like your point about the market research, a lot of people sometimes have this great product and then you you, you research, okay, well, who's doing this? You, you realize they have all these competitors and you ask them about the competitors and they're like, oh, I didn't even know they existed. I'm mm-hmm. like how did you build a product without even knowing that there's someone in the same state as you that's already done it and just got $7 million of funding? Like that's something that you should really know. Mm -hmm. And I I think a lot of people don't see what's out there before they do it. And you don't want to be guided necessarily by that, but you should be informed enough to be able to decide whether it's even a worthwhile initiative. Yeah.
1: It's interesting, isn't it? it? I almost get that sense sometimes that, um, you're not a successful entrepreneur if you didn't kind of just, just, give it a crack without having any data behind it or research behind it it's which obviously we find a little bit frustrating we're going that well, don't you want to actually see if there's a market there and and bring it to market properly but it's it's almost that counterintuitive bit and I think sometimes we see advisors going well no you don't need to you don't need to research the market, and maybe you don't need to research the, the market over. And you've got to have your your um, intuition and that willingness to push forward. Because like, if you've got a great market opportunity, perhaps no one else has seen it, and you've got you can see something that someone else hasn't seen. But but yeah, they just they're often does seem like the um, maybe it's maybe it's the, the failed the the, the the failed entrepreneurs that maybe kind of push forward too blindly and actually don't don't have an ability to be able to sort of connect with what the reality actually is.
0: Well yeah, I mean I think I think there's also like you're saying an element of like being that entrepreneur, you need to kind of buck everything sometimes to create that yeah, thing that's, that's right. a, a yeah, blue exactly. sky, blue ocean type of, of of element. But I think at the same time we also live in a world where there's so much data that you, you can't still do that and not <laughs> type mm, it mm, into Google mm. and figure out a couple things about it. Yeah. But but certainly I think it's a certainly a balance. But I think the great thing is that we have enough data now where you can make informed decisions to know whether things are gonna work. I mean, more and more you see people being smart about I'm just going to A, B uh, an ad uh, against two ideas that I have and, yeah. just, and realize, wow, right, 80% of people liked the thing that I actually didn't think was the thing. You just save yourself a lot of money, mm. a lot of time doing that simple experiment that would cost you $5. So yeah. I think if more people looked at it like that when they need to to make those bigger decisions, they'd probably save themselves time too.
1: Yeah. And that's interesting. I'm so an entrepreneur's entrepreneur side of... What's your recommendation or suggestion or thoughts in terms of when you um, take criticism on board um, and maybe sort of listen to what they know? That might be from research or just feedback about pros and cons of your idea, or, or, or when do you just drive forward and like with that, that blind faith?
0: Uh, I would think if, if you're passionate about it. Yourself, largely, it's going to probably impact you in some way or someone that you know. Usually, you see a lot of the time. There's a distinct correlation to that. Outside of that, I think uh, you have to listen to other people to a certain extent. But I think the bottom line is you need to listen to the people that you're actually trying to serve. Mm-hmm. And if you are, if their advice is always it's it doesn't work like it should, but it's getting better, and I'm happy about it. Then you're on the right track, provided you've done, you know, there's enough people that it fulfills a desire. But I think a lot of more people have to get into the trenches and talk to those people and don't worry about someone who looks at their analytics or looks at their marketing or looks at this. If they're constantly working with the person they're trying to create the solution for and those people are constantly getting more and more impressed and more loyal and this has helped making an impact, then you keep doing it. If people just don't even care, the people that you're trying to help, they don't care, then maybe it's time to mm. say, what am I doing? because I'm trying to help people and they don't care. And I've explained it to them. Yeah, that's yeah. a waste of my time. Yeah. But they're really, like, if you solve this thing, like you've got a customer for life and you improve on that mission, they're going to be patient with you for helping them. And you, you have a vision and you have a, something behind you. But I think that's the most important thing is listen to the people that you actually think you're helping and see if they actually care. And a lot of people don't get into the market enough to actually ask that person. Yeah, yeah. If they did that more, they'd probably save a lot of time. I think.
1: Yeah. it's interesting they Um, different uh, conversations around, you kind of, in, in a new idea, you're looking for a bit of friction. So you don't want to have it so goes, that's a wonderful idea. You, you, you kind of want a little bit of friction that... Uh not everybody's 100% on side, but you, you get a little bit of that. But from your, your conversation, you also, what you want is you're building a community. You're building a connection with that community, whether it's your music business or whether it's Sweat or like a Vino mofo. That, they were largely about building a community, weren't they really? So it's, and that might not necessarily be formal market research, but it's certainly about, uh, are you listening to community? Are you building, uh, right. are you building the product and evolving the product based on what your community's feedback or behaviors are. Is that is that fair? Yeah.
0: yeah, I think I think that that transparency that goes into that is well received by a community. Yeah. And then they feel a part of it. I mean that's why you see the success of so much of these crowdfunding things. It's because people feel like they're have been included. They had a voice, they had a say, they had a decision, they had some role in something that they cared about. Because not everyone is a creator. Mm-hmm. Not everyone has the abilities to do these things. But if it fulfills something that they're interested in and they want to be a part of it in some way, listening to those people and getting that feedback, is that's that's the quickest path to success, I think, because that's the first person to put money in your pocket. And that's the other thing, that I think, in a place where there's been traditionally a lot of government grants to get things going, and I don't blame it as a lack of early-stage financing currently, which that needs to be addressed, but that zero-sum thinking... Isn't conducive to going out in the market and getting money for your product because mm-hmm. you're waiting for someone to give you the grant to finish building a product and then go to market and see if they like it. And I've seen a lot of stuff that shouldn't have got as far as it should have if they had spoken to people. And I think that comes into that. That's a part of a mindset shift of how people build products and put things out there. I think. And that if you're in a collaborative place and it's very dense, you're going to get more of that feedback much more easier, and you'll be more open to it. You won't be holding things close to your vest because there is a sense of like a little bit you know not want to expose things i think a little bit still here that maybe come out of academia and, and you know keeping your research tight against other you know, i don't know um but i think all this stuff dovetails mm. into the same opportunity
1: and we like the same thing i think sometimes people are so conscious of not sharing their idea because somebody might steal it but they really need to to share it enough to be able to get some feedback is whether it's a good idea or not so good idea and, and chances are no one no one's going to nick it it's it's it Need to be just. You can always sort of keep back some of the the IP around the idea, so it doesn't get too much. Doesn't get shared. Obviously, one of your areas of expertise or key areas of expertise and success in your your music business is is building a community. And we talked about the, the, some of the communities like Sweat and and Vino and uh, Vino Mofo. And how do you build a community? Like it's obviously sort of a holy grail for many businesses. But how do you grow a business, a, a community of you know, seven hundred and fifty? People or more or or less that that you can then ask them for some money and and, and sell them services to. Uh,
0: I think always you start off by benefiting them. You 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 provide a value, and I, I'm a firm believer that when you provide tremendous value to a lot of people, that value will come back to you. So that's the very first thing you have to do.
1: Uh, provide. So those early stages have been able to provide some value to that that community
0: yeah. and that value has to be coupled with a feedback mechanism so there's a way for people to participate and express their disinterest their hate their love for what you're building and then to know that you actually respond to it i think that's one of the key things that you may get a lot of feedback and say that's great well we'll just go and do that for eight days and build up that feature and not tell anyone thinking you'll surprise when it's done like that's the wrong way to go about it what you need to do is say this is amazing we are now road mapping this and say you're going to do it for eight days so that even if you're doing six days ago, that's amazing. Or if you takes 12 and you say, hey, we didn't quite get an eight, they're along for the journey. And I think that documentation of your own process with your customer base is, is, a, is a key part of it because then they're invested in that journey with you and that is part of the investment that they're making. And that's where the value will be recouped on the end, I think, from the people that feel like it's something that they're a part of for sure.
1: So when you say the documentation of um, of their feedback or your response to their feedback, is that via social media or? Yeah, like? so I
0: mean, whether you decide to build a Facebook group that that monitors this whole thing, whether you do it through whatever channels that you're most comfortable with, and Instagram or, or whatever, and just story everything that you're creating. Um, but always being engaging with that feedback, let them know that you have been heard, and tell them why you won't do something or why you think you will. And it may touch upon some other issue you never thought about where that community gets really in on something you never thought about, saying, geez, we never even thought that people would be passionate about this thing. You know, I think that's the best way that you can build product. I mean, not to listen to the whim of everyone, certainly, but I think by doing that, you facilitate um, a sense of union around what you're creating, and that's where community stems from. Mm. And then people will support you, and they become champions in their own thing, and they'll bring more people. That's how you will grow it through you know their own channels, but they'll also become champions and be connecting on your own platform. And it's recognizing that, and it certainly is a gamifying application where you know by doing things to a certain level, where people are known to be more connected and doing more helpful things that obviously gives more reason to do that. And they like having that recognition for being a VIP in that sense. I mean, this obviously does a whole other level of gamification that goes into these types of things, but I think giving people the chance to communicate and being transparent and, and active in engaging those conversations is the number one thing that people should do for building any brand. Yeah.
1: Okay. So it, and clearly that comes back that, that all helps to, um, building trust really, isn't it? And, and across the world, corporate and government are struggling to build trust with consumers and citizens, uh, the communities such as the, the, the ones that you've talked about, uh, they build that trust. They build that trust by being transparent and being authentic and, and listening and not being afraid to admit when they've made a mistake and they're going to fix it. And is, is that right? Being right. Responsive? I mean, I think,
0: I think a great example, I mean, so our community alone has, I mean, it has chat enabled into it. So I very frequently am on there, just chatting to people. Um, and it's funny how many times someone will be talking to me and then they'll get word and be like, oh my God, like you're Loop Labs? like you know, that's, that's the username. <laughs> they just figure someone grabbed it. And they can't believe that someone that was behind the creation of this thing is actually just talking about music mm-hmm. with them. And that has a massive impact on the way that other people perceive that. Uh, I think... That's one of the key things of being able to dip into things when you people wouldn't expect you to as mm. a leader in anything i mean if, if if you were in government I mean just being able to do those things' you're in the street and having those conversations those things go a long way to to all those things happening
1: mm. and clearly having a community where you've it was your passion I mean you, you've connected with a passion that many other people have is means like it it's it creates that connection of that community. Really, it's it's not a you're not talking about health insurance. You're talking about music, and a lot of people are passionate about music. So you can you can build that community right. around it. Yeah.
0: And I can think one of the most stressful moments, even in the last few years, was we had basically like a massive like data collapse on the platform, and everything just poof, poof it just went away, and. There's a moment of fear thinking like, this is it. Everything's been lost. And I'm talking about like, you know, at that point, it was probably more than half a million people that had music on a platform that I thought it poofed. Now it took us a good week plus to be able to go through different backups and cross do just to do a whole bunch of stuff to recoup 90 point, you know, nine point, whatever percent of it. But we are actively communicating through that process. And that was one of the key things that, you know, people just had love for us thinking, Oh man, we feel you. But they knew that we were mm. out there trying to put out this fire and save it. So even though some people did lose stuff and it, some people to go through a bit of a hiccup coming back, you know, re grabbing some files and stuff, everyone was generally not, not giving us a hard time about it because we were transparent about the fact that like <laughs> no one's sleeping, like this is like we're like stressed out too. Yeah. And they, they were along there. So when they came back, if anything, it was like, which is nothing but like kudos for us doing that. And that was a massive failure that, you know, if a, if a big corporate did that, they would, they wouldn't get that kind of response. Generally they would just be shit on part of yeah. my French know. So you were
1: quite transparent about the problem and what you're doing to try to resolve it. And is that right? Yeah. yeah. And partly,
0: yeah. partly you had to because you can't get around the fact that right now the data was just currently just missing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was certainly, it was a great learning experience to be able to get that kind of feedback, you know, just thinking we could have lose a lot of people's hours of time. So you go through a bit of a serious emotional thing. There's a lot of people like (laughs) the amount of human life in terms of the hours, human hours are spent, you know, it's human lives worth. Mm -hmm. You think of it like that, you're like that's a lot of energy and attention that would go away. So I learned a lot about just that transparency and and it's okay to be able to be uh, open and be um, not just transparent, but I think also to be... um, well, just yeah, no, just being just being completely open and vulnerable mm. to, to letting people see that you're actually building this thing. People have more love for the journey. I think if people share their journey more with the people they would find that they have they'd have more customers because people get behind people that are given a good shot because they're not doing it. Yeah, that's good.
1: Um, we had quite, we have quite a few clients that uh, we we will do work from. I won't say who they are. but corporate, government, and they've gone through a. Uh, an oh shit moment and really about kind of looking at how they should resolve it and, and also how they do do resolve it. And, and our general suggestion is here to, to come out, say you're sorry, uh, this is a plan moving forward and, and be quite clear and quick and, and, and speedy about it. I, one of the examples around that time when we did, did some work earlier this year, uh, the uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken or KFC in the UK um, ran out of chicken. <laughs> okay. So rather rather than kind of going... And and often in corporate and government world they'll duck and weave and they'll blame and what we find in work we do is that the the consumer side they're going oh they just blame everybody then no, no one's taking responsibility but in the UK it, they they had a little ad that just said um it was it was KFC had an ad that just went um yeah FCK on the box and so basically fuck we run out of chicken and they were quite out there they're quite and and that was a for for something you go you can't run out of your core product they were they were respected that they yep. they made a mistake, they stuffed up. But we well, do find... an extreme way
0: of showing it too. They, they got away with an that's extreme right, yeah, way yeah, to be right. playful with it.
1: Where, where, where often we find, whether it's a government uh, organisation or whether it's a corporate big organisation, like they say, a bank, um, they don't want to, ad- want to admit blame or responsibility because then that admits that they've got problems. Yeah, uh, it's
0: a bit harder when you're in an institution like that where, it's, where a lot of people depend on yeah. the stability it's harder to take, a, I think, a small issue because people might extrapolate mm-hmm. that into like, if that happened, Jesus, that's where my savings are, or that's yeah. where I put my trust in you're defending me or looking after my yeah. well-being.
1: What about uh, coming onto that sort of trust issue of a, a, a digital platform that's highly trusted that um, uh, took a bit of a hit earlier this year was, was Facebook and the Cambridge Analytica uh, data side. We don't need to necessarily go into too much of a dive into it, but... How do you think Mark Zuckerberg handled that situation and could he have handled it better?
0: Uh, Listen, he's he's always going to have issues with people thinking he's just a robot, right? (laughs) I mean, he's just always going to be stiff. Um, I mean, ironically, I think it exposed, if anything, the the failure of the people questioning him to understand what what the hell they were asking him about because most of the time he was given the correct straight answer. Mm. And it just seemed awkward because the people didn't know what they were talking about. So in many ways, he did what he was supposed to do. I think, I think if anything it was more, people had no idea that this was going on. It's the same thing. We'll accept terms to anything. You know, no one reads this stuff, and you know, slowly this those things get bigger and bigger and bigger. Uh, but I think what it did was expose the fact that this is going on. I mean, people started realizing when they keep seeing ads on a platform when they're visiting a site. Mm. Some people probably figured out that something was going on. But that's just the tip of the iceberg, I think. Uh, I know it's just interesting. For me, as a person who's just grown up and always been online and a part of these things, I always find it fascinating for people that are coming to it new, how they go through these sort of feelings of like, oh, everyone can see what I'm doing or Mm -hmm. my stuff's being captured. I mean, those are big moments to go through as a person to really think everything I'm doing is being captured and Mm there is no escape from it if you actually come to that thought and you're a person that's not technological, those are weird moments for Mm -hmm. a lot of people to go through that and think what that means to them and how they're going to participate in the way they're going to connect with people and how open they'll be if they know that. Some people become very shut down when they start thinking like that. So these are things... I mean, we're going through a very interesting time where all these things are going to come up because we have a new generation of people that are um, going through this.
1: Is it about people being aware of what they're sharing or is it just accepting that that's just the reality of part of using these platforms you are you are sharing data and
0: uh, i mean it is the reality there's no getting around it i mean you're the product right so the reality is that this is going to be done i think i think there's many benefits to that having that data if it's anonymized to my benefit as well i think you're going to see these things being decentralized i think eventually you'll see as people accept the new wave of technology which allows for the decentralization of communities that you'll likely see that and ownership will come back into the hands of people. I think that's bound to happen unless something's legally put in place to stop that. Um, but yeah, you know, it, it's just funny, you know, you talk to, you know, people, you know, in their 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. It's just, these are such interesting times for them to hear these debates because, you know, I remember conversations with my dad, you know, even 10, 15 years ago, maybe pre-2001, talking about big brother, He's like, you could never have Big Brother because there's not enough people to watch the people. And I would I kept saying, I'm I'm just a junior developer back then and I'm like, but like I can almost build something that could track people now. And I, I don't even know what I'm doing back mm-hmm. So you start realizing that Big Brother doesn't require a person watching a person, but it's all automated and you've got artificial intelligence and machine learning and computer vision, and all these things doing everything on every single camera everywhere and combined with I mean it's just humans aren't required anymore. And I think this is the, the landscape that we're in and we talk about new space. That's a new mm. level of data that's going in that's going to be feeding the same. You hook up that data set with another data set of, you know, remote, you know, viewing. It's a, it's an interesting mm. world of opportunity and challenge. Yeah.
1: Should we fear the robots or should we embrace them or is it about robots and humans working? Well, we're making the robots. So yeah.
0: that's the first thing yeah. Just realize that we're the ones making it. Yeah. I have no idea. Listen, I mean, I think, I think any time you actually like put weapons of destruction that have an opportunity to kind of go off track if they if something shoots them off track, that's probably a dangerous thing. Mm. But if if they're not lethal robots, I think what difference does it make?
1: Yeah, Uh, Dr. Fiona Kerr, we interviewed in the in a previous uh, episode, and and she just talked about we need to have that debate and discussion. It just needs, rather than just accepting blindly, we just need to have that discussion about what's that future we want to create and ensuring that the people, whether they're school students or adults, are saying, well, what is this? What is this world where we're moving into and and, and creating? Is that What what do you think around that?
0: Yeah, well, I think it's it's interesting because if you extrapolate what the likelihood is if things don't go destructive, you're going to have a place where everyone has a lot of free time because... There's not much need to do anything because it's all being taken care of. So when you have opportunity to be have creative leisure or, or time, that's the interesting part of what will humanity turn into. That. That's the exciting part for me. Mm-hmm. I think that we get, we get unshackled from having to be productive yeah. and could be sort of more creative than productive. I think that's probably good for humanity, and I'm really curious what will happen because a lot of people are very not creative. Not not by choice, but just not thinking that mm. they can be and limited in, in many ways to, to being creative like that's I mean, right. we used to. Uh, yeah, it's a it's a conversation that we're going to have because we're living through it, and, and people, kids today, they're living through it. You know, my daughter, who's just young, she likely will not drive a car. Mm. Right? These are interesting times where people came and would never have fathom. What do you mean they'll never get a driver's license? Yeah, that's the happening. Hey. That's going to be a real thing soon. So. I think the more that we have those conversations the better because people should be wrapping themselves around the fact that artificial intelligence is going to displace administrative jobs which you know a city like this has a lot of those So the irony of having amazing artificial intelligence coming out of the universities and and great minds is that they'll be first to displace Mm -hmm. a lot of the jobs here. So I think more people have to get into that sense of, like, I need to create my own job in the future. It's up to me more to be responsible for what I'm going to do. And I need to look around the world and try to find problems that a lot of people have and learn how to find solutions to those problems. And that's a new way of thinking that people are... You're not given those tools in school. You're, You're told to remote remember... Uh, you know, facts and just rehearse. You're not actually getting cognitive abilities to actually come up with solution solving. Mm -hmm. So, yeah.
1: Yeah. And when we interviewed Dr. of for, uh, an earlier episode as well, and, and his comment around artificial intelligence and, um, and all the what we've been talking about, uh, just just more recently in the discussion, was it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. So it's it's just accepting that this is actually going to be uh, occurring. But but also in a lot of the discussions we've been having, it's uh, the one thing that robots can't replace is understanding context, creativity, imagination, leaps of faith so been, and being able to f- solve those those fundamental wrongs that need to be made right that's that's what that's what humans do really well so rather than fearing the robots or even worse becoming robots we need to actually yeah keep those keep those skills and, and characteristics alive
0: yeah well certainly yeah. The, the playful aspect which which ideally we may be in a situation where by freeing us, ourselves from the time and the monotony of, of doing those types of, of work we all of a sudden open ourselves to becoming more creative and more innovative, ideally to fuel opportunities of guiding the productive side of humanity, which could be machines. I mean, there's a, there's a great uh, symbiotic relationship that can form. Uh, but certainly you have to have that discussion of knowing where we want to go on a, a much larger scale. Because what would happen right now if no one did have to work right now? People wouldn't be able to handle it. They'd mm-hmm. be going crazy after we not know what to do themselves. That's right. So you have to grow into that too. That's I think. right.
1: And concepts like full employment what does it mean in the future when there may not be jobs for everybody it's what does what, what does that actually mean um you've got two children uh correct two and four is that right yep, two yeah four, yeah yeah two two girls
0: uh older girl and little guy
1: yeah so what in a nutshell what are what are your hopes and dreams for them in the future as they go through school and into their future um,
0: beyond health i mean simply you know, the opportunity for them to to fulfill whatever ideas and aspirations that they have would be the, the greatest thing. I think you'd, you'd want as a child or as a parent to see your child's uh, sort of go through. Um, right now, it's just fun to be able to watch them grow through a time that's just so. You know, it's, it's not going to happen again. We're living through a very new time. Where we're going from analog to digital. Like that's one time pass. I don't think you, you do that again. Those things go really sideways. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting to see you know, because I'm trying to bring in a sensibility of how things were like before as being probably the last generation that had a taste of that as a child. I'm right at that cusp where, you know, computers, pubic hair <laughs> came around <laughs> the same time, right? Very unique generation that can say that. So um, knowing how a lot of people are today with technology, it's really interesting for me to sort of try to instill an element of what, It's like without technology from my own personal experience to my children before (laughs) they get whisked away by a lot of people that have already succumbed to just the full technological play.
1: Yeah, okay. So we started off with you as a young boy uh, growing up in Canada. What are your suggestions for young people moving forward? A couple kind of key uh, suggestions built on you looking back or even looking forward. Uh, for either young people or early 20-somethings or whatever?
0: I think um, one of the greatest skills that anyone can learn is the ability to communicate and be comfortable communicating to other people, number one, but also being in touch with what it is that they want to communicate and really refining the element of being able to tell a story around what they're doing. Um, If you're going to do anything that's independent of getting a regular job, that is the number one skill. You have to sell people on why they should... Uh, care. and I think that's something that can get you anywhere and the ability to communicate that and being comfortable communicating that. putting yourself outside of your comfort zone is one of the greatest things you can do. It's mm. I mean most of the success that I've ever had looking back came as a result of saying, well, I've never spoken before, but I'm just going to put my hand up and do this. Or I've never written a book, but there's an opportunity. I'm just going to go do it. And and I haven't seen the conference. Like I'll just like just doing these things is often one of the greatest ways that mm-hmm. you can get that set of skills. Because more and more, I think you're not going to have one job at one place for a long time. The amount of jobs you have is probably insane. That I would focus much more on building your own personal brand and be known for what you are passionate about, what you're good at through social, through your own distribution channels and get to be known for your own abilities, not the company that you're working for. Because more than likely you'll be hiring yourself through your own company and doing your own work. But if not, you're going to be floating around a lot. So the more that you're just known as an industry specialist or thought leader in an idea, that's much more self-serving and and more opportunistic than than going down a path of a career, I think.
1: Cool. That's great. That's excellent. So how can people find you on social media, Craig?
0: Yeah, they really don't. <laughs> I'm actually ironically, you know, not very active on there. So, uh, LinkedIn would probably be the best place because usually my conversations around people that are building stuff. And I find that most of those conversations, the active people that are in, in sort of in the weeds, you know, cutting the path are usually on LinkedIn and that would just be Craig Swan on, on LinkedIn.
1: Yeah. All right. That's pretty easy. And, South Start, when's, when's that?
0: Yeah, for sure, South Start, uh, November 22nd and 23rd uh, Town Hall. Two amazing days and two super fun nights that we got planned. And and, and I guess for anyone that happens to be listening to this that, that might be a, a young company or even a, a scaling company that's looking potentially for opportunities uh, for investment or for growth, uh, we're adding a, a third day as a special sort of investor showcase and really working hard to to sort of highlight and put uh, on the map as many of the amazing companies that we can come in contact with. So if, if you're someone that's looking for funds, we're we'll bringing in some people with big pockets looking to invest in the amazing technologies here in the state. Um, definitely reach out at southstart.co uh, there if you'd be interested in, in getting involved in, in that stream.
1: Cool. Thank you so much, Craig. No, thank you. It was all a pleasure. All the best. Cheers. Hey, Jason here to say goodbye. Until next time, please subscribe to Real People via iTunes, your favourite podcast platform. While you are there, please leave a review. If you're interested in receiving our every Friday, same time, emails on everything human-centred, customer-focused, entrepreneurialism and thinking different, popular articles by me, the Square Holes team, and special guests who have included Professor Barry Bergen, Christy Anthony and Suet Anantula, please go to squareholes.com forward slash blog to read and join our email list. You can also follow me, Jason Dunstone, on Twitter or your favourite social media. Thank you for listening. Uru.